Content warning. Please be aware that this video contains material of sensitive nature, talking about psychosis and mental illnesses that may be triggering for some individuals. Hi Nick, welcome back to the podcast and thank you very much for joining me again. And I think from the last episode you mentioned about your experience um, with hallucinogens, um, the psychosis episode you had. I wonder if we could explore more and talk about that and your experience uh, about that. Absolutely. And thanks for having me back, Bob. Super excited. Um, so how did you go about having the psychosis experience? I mean, what happened? Yeah, so let me kind of give a context. So I was just starting uh, university uh, at Ohio State University. I was 18 years old, had just turned 18. So it was May um, and had just finished basic training. So I went to basic training and was there for six to eight weeks over the summer while all my friends were having fun. I went and joined the military and had to oh, do so a, that's basic training. Okay. Yeah. And so from May, June, July, I was in that. And then in the fall, school started. And sometime around December or January, I joined a band. Uh, we were called The Bakery. I was the lead singer. It was a rock band. One of the uh, members of the band located acid, so LSD. And it was in a gel form, so kind of a, a gel tab. And we would take it, not every practice, but pretty pretty frequently, you know, uh, at least once or twice a month. And we always had a great experience in the sense that we would be able to write songs in a way that we weren't able to before. A lot of it was done on recording devices where, you know, we would record while playing and sort of have that snippet of improvisation and then later kind of construct songs around it. I noticed this pretty extreme opening in the sense of being more social, being more open with people. I mean, I was really getting what I would call pretty intense benefit. At least that's what it appeared like was happening at the time. I had never experienced anything like that before. So it was my first real experience with hallucinogens. Yeah, so I don't know how many times, maybe eight or nine times we had you know, taken those gel tabs. And then sometime in the spring, we ran out and I went to find more and I found some and it was sold to me in like a liquid format. So it was a like a small glass bottle and it was filled maybe like two thirds of the way with a clear liquid. And I'm pretty naive at this time. You know, I uh, I don't know if there were testing kits around. I'm sure there were. But needless to say, we weren't testing it. Um, right. So we did take it a few times. Um, we, we dripped it, took like a, a dropper and dripped it onto a sugar cube. And it went fine. I would say the uh, experience was a little more intense, a little more visual than LSD, but overall not significantly different. Not enough of a difference for us to be like, oh, well, this is clearly not the same substance. And so we had taken that maybe three or four times. And then one day we take it, nothing happens at all to anyone. Everyone takes a drop. And I think I spent like $500 on this. So I'm a little like, whoa, this sucks. You know, I wanted to take this for the next year or something. This yeah. magical chemical we've discovered. And I can't, it doesn't work. It was a waste of money. I wasted $500 and all this. And the guy had said it's like 600 hits or something. In my uh, youthful uh, foolishness, I took bread and rolled it up and put it into the bottle, shook up the bottle and ate the piece of bread, thinking that somehow it had become degraded right. and that if I took a lot of it, something would happen. But uh, I don't know how many, you know, equivalent hits that would be. But like we're talking probably hundreds, I guess. 
Right. Um, and it didn't really go south for, I would say, two or three days. Um, you know, didn't sleep the first night. Uh, some of the experiences I was having is intense stimulation, uh, way more than, you know, your average LSD trip. And when you say um, stimulation, what, what did you mean? Like you uh, restlessness, difficulty, okay. uh, being still, pacing back and forth, not being able to sleep. And then intense visual uh, hallucination. But mostly at this point, for the first one to three days, it's kind of like the world is being distorted. And there wasn't much like hallucination in the sense of uh, some brand new object, right? It's more of a distortion of the room, the sky, the walls, other people's faces. Um, But this continued and about seven days went by with no sleep. So I didn't sleep for about a week. And around day six or seven, I'm with my high school friends. We all room together in the dorm. So they know me. They've known me for years. And they started to realize something, (laughs) something was awry. Yeah. Uh, Because around day six or seven, I began to have paranoia. Uh, So thinking that people were watching us, you know, some classic symptoms of maybe schizophrenia, thinking that uh, there's people here, people there. And a lot of this, I think, was a compounding of you know not having the sleep, but also yeah. I stopped eating. And I'm not sure when that happened, but probably on about day two, it ceased to be important. And uh, even drinking, you know. So I'm I'm guessing it was probably four to five days without water. Gosh. But the time that it became noticeable enough, you know, they're they're like, okay, something's seriously wrong with Nick. They called my dad. Right. And my dad, uh, I talked to him on the phone and he immediately knew something was wrong. So he drove down and they took me to the Ohio State University psych ward for that night, thinking that I'll get in there, I'll get some sleep and I'll be good to go. You know, so yeah. they took me uh, in the psych ward there. I stayed in a room. I didn't go into any other area. So I stayed in kind of a observation room with, I remember, really bright fluorescent lights. And I was actually alone for up to three hours okay um because the the place was so busy i'm guessing i later volunteered there or shadowed there in radiology department and for my dietetics practice yeah so i became familiar with the place later and my guess is that they were just extremely busy yeah i feel like it was a little unhelpful so they didn't realize the severity of your case then Oh, they did. Yeah, I think they they did. did. At that time, I was drug tested and I was just seen by an ER doctor, not like a psychologist or neurologist or anything. But um, they drug tested me at that time and it came up positive for PCP. Now, the effects of that compound, you know, from my experience and from everyone else who took it in the band, that's not what that was. And so I later found out years later that it was most likely for MEO PCP. Okay. Which isn't a drug that's like a pretty easy to produce or synthesize and it's kind of analogous to lsd but it has an extremely long half-life and so it really can build up in the body and you can really overdose on it i mean there, there are some cases of lsd where people are taking thousands of hits and having beneficial experiences right Th- this isn't really the case for meo pcp and actually okay. they, they found abnormal brain scans issues with metabolism and there's some issues with it so uh, just pointing out. Yeah, uh, I'm a bit ignorant in terms of these things. So what what is PCP? So PCP is a common street drug. Really gives you a feeling of like grandiosity from okay. my 
research. I've never taken it myself. Yeah. But 4-MeO PCP is not the same thing. Um, it, it has a similar chemical structure, yeah. but it's an incredibly powerful uh, hallucinogen. Maybe at that time it would be called a designer drug, but people right. were selling it. And it's also really rare to find LSD in liquid form. So it's not surprising that that was the case, especially at the time, you know, there was a lot of, I mean, even today, there's hundreds and hundreds of analogs on the market. And I feel like this is a good time to talk about this. So it's always important to test anything that, you, you know, if you're ever going to take something at home, I'm not advocating for that, but knowing what it is, you know, if it's not a natural thing that you can identify, taking the time to purchase a test kit to test the thing, make sure you know what it is, make sure you know what the dosage is. And just as a kind of uh, PSA, public service announcement, I'm not advocating for the ingestion of any hallucinogen. The reason behind that is everyone it may be beneficial for some people. There's a lot of research showing that mushrooms are beneficial, ayahuasca is beneficial, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, all kinds of things, even LSD. I mean, they've been researching LSD since the 50s. Even though there is a lot of evidence that it can be beneficial in various ways and various reasons, there's always going to be the outliers that people who have bad experiences or potentially let's just call them bad negative experiences, not beneficial experiences. And so if it's something that seems to be helping, you know, that's fine. But I think advocating for it is a little bit short-sighted because there is a potential risks associated. Even if you have the right compound, even if you uh, are in safe hands, even if it's legal, and we can talk about that, there's, there's a lot of legal situations now where you can take these substances, there is risk involved. And I think especially for um, people who have a history of mental illness, if you have a history in your family, if you have a history uh, just personally, even things like uh, depression, not that that's simple, but different than, say, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I mean, you might have a higher risk of having a negative experience. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there, just make it known that it's not, It's this isn't a blanket cure. It's not something that's uh, helpful for everyone. And just be extremely diligent and do your research, make sure you know what you're doing, and make sure that you're taking it for the right reasons if you are going to, to take it or take yeah. anything. I think I think that's important that in, in this podcast, we're not advocating for these substances. Um, this podcast is more educational to inform you know, for you to share your experience and hopefully, um, you know, help help people. So you were going, uh, you're talking about you were in the hospital um, and they um, left you for three hours. You had fluorescent lights. Okay. And I had some interviews at that time and they were totally nonsensical. They did the drug test. It came up as PCP, but for MEO PCP, it's not specific enough to show that. Just like 1P LSD and 1E LSD, you can't differentiate them with the test. Same sort of thing. If, if that chemical compound is in there, that's what it shows up on the test. My parents took me home at that time, that night, actually, back to uh, where we grew up, which is in uh, Enon, Ohio, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah, about an hour away. And they gave me medicine. I was given uh, Ativan a lot, a, a pretty large dose. And so I went to sleep, but I didn't okay. drink any water, didn't eat any food. Uh, there was a lot of things that weren't kind of taken into consideration at that point. And the next morning I woke up and my parents had actually gone to work and left me there thinking I would wake up just fine. Yeah. But my sister was home before she went to school. She was about to go to school. And when I woke up, 
things were not okay. I, I had, I was writing in notebooks, just nonsensical things, kind of hypergraphia, just a relentless uh, writing had filled like 60 or 70 pages before my sister had even woken up just in a okay. couple hours. I couldn't remember her name you know, significant memory problems, and then just ridiculous verbal expressions. <laughs> so they called the ambulance at that time. And my friend was a paramedic person in the back. I knew yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> he, he knew me. We went to summer camp together. Yeah. And he immediately recognized that not only was there mental problems going on, which seemed to be what everyone was paying attention to, there was something physical going on because he tried to give me an IV and couldn't. He did 36, oh, okay. 36 attempts. And I remember he was crying in the ambulance because he knew me, you know, yes. and that wasn't helping, you know. And another thing is uh, they first brought the police before the ambulance which also wasn't helpful. You know, things are just kind of the, the context is starting to get worse and worse. The environment. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about this more. Uh, there really could be uh, a wiser approach to these sort of things. Yeah. Uh, to when people have a, you know, a mental health crisis. But so I take the ambulance, we go to the hospital and they put me in a level four psych ward. So the most serious level. And this is where there's people, you know, you can imagine the sort of people who are there, some people who've been there for 20 years, long-term residents, uh, and then acute people coming through, old people who've been on lithium, you know, forever okay. and ever and ever. They put me on Seroquel, which I think was helping, but like helping in the sense that it was kind of slowing down thoughts. Uh, Seroquel is an antipsychotic. Okay. Um, and, you know, just judging by, I took it for about three or four months. Judging from its effects, you know, that I was able to ascertain at that time, it seems to slow down really intense thoughts and identifications with those thoughts. Uh, yeah. And it creates a th sort of lethargy, which is beneficial in this sort of manic state I was in. But uh, at this time, I'm hallucinating pretty significantly, so much so that I'm seeing photorealistic people yeah. that aren't there. So my in has become out in such a way that I'm seeing beings, you know, uh, yeah. and creatures and various real, I mean, so real that I can't tell them apart. It, they're just as real as the nurse or the psychologist or whatever else. So would you say the filter, that filter is gone? Uh, yeah, there's absolutely no way for me to tell what's real and what's not real. Yeah. Um, and I'm also kind of vacillating between an extreme euphoria and an extreme fear yeah. back and forth. And uh, at this time, the dreams, like I was sleeping because they were giving me uh, sedatives to put me to sleep at night. I mean, they started to recognize, oh, wow, OK, there's no sleep going on here we need to solve yeah. this problem and, and they would give me sedatives before your typical bedtime to try yeah. to get me to go to sleep and when they would give me the sedatives i would sleep but when i would sleep the dreams were so uh lucid and photorealistic that i would wake up not realizing i had slept and become sort of irritated because it's like i still haven't slept yeah i'm not sleeping i wasn't even recognizing that sleep was occurring so uh, how many days had the hallucination gone on for? So when you took the substance to uh, the ward? Yeah, the so I would say it continued for about 
10 months in Gosh. various intensities, but um, really pretty subtle the first few days and then much more significant the last few days. And then from the hospitalization for about one to two months, very intense hallucinations, even audio, audio hallucinations like echoes and fragments. So like when someone would say something like, hey, Nick, how are you doing? There would be an echo like how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? Okay. And uh, I would see halos around people, real people, not the imagined ones. Uh, yeah. Imagined ones didn't have halos, but or I don't know if they're imagined. Don't know what I was seeing. Don't want to try to contemplate what that was. But the people, yeah. actual nurses, my family members, they would have a halo, like a stereotypical from the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> halo. Yeah. Um, Did you recognize your family members? I remember yeah, the names. Uh, over time, okay. over about one to two weeks, I started, I mean, I recognized them. I knew they were familiar, but it was difficult yeah. for me yeah. to, if someone asked, who is this? I wouldn't be able to uh, do that. But after about two weeks of getting sleep, I started to be able to, to do that. The hypergraphia remained for like three or four months, probably. Yeah. And uh, I think I was in the hospital for two to three weeks in total. And I went back home and my dad took care of me for a long, long time yeah. uh, before I went back to school. Uh, but I was still having very extreme symptoms. I even remember I was in the reserves, the military reserves during this okay. time. And my commander was a really nice guy, apparently, because uh, he caught wind of this and kind of covered for me. You know, you're okay. supposed to go every weekend. Yeah. Uh, but I remember going finally going back after six or seven months. I actually went back to work and uh, I was still hallucinating, you know, at the job Gosh. in the military. Yeah. Uh, driving forklifts, things like that. What was happening? Were you, what was you imagining? Um, so there was a little bit of delusion for three to four months. And I thought people who were older had lived for like thousand years. Okay. Um, but I saw this like pure light in everyone. So I, you know, I just trying to help people, but sort of in a twisted, don't know how sort of way. You know, I thought I knew what was right for people and I would kind of incessantly try to help them in this weird hypermanic way, you know? Okay. But then there would be like, I've seen grandiosity. I, I've seen these things that you can't possibly comprehend. Okay. Trying to get that across to people in an unhealthy yeah. way. Yeah. Friends and family. And, and, you know, they put me in a rehab program, but they weren't sure to where to put me. So they put me in a rehab program with people who were basically opioid recoverers, yeah. you know, and, and my thing was just not that. Yeah. Uh, but it was good because I had to like put my clothes on and go, you know, do something. Um, but I went back to school while still going through this. And I still Were was able, able to, to function going to school. Yeah, I was able to graduate in four years. And actually, my uh, grades improved dramatically. My dad loves talking about that. Uh, you know, the first couple quarters of school I was doing really bad. Yeah. And after going back after the psychosis, my grades, yeah. I was on the dean's list like moving okay. forward wow okay uh, but there was also an extreme just like wonderment curiosity about stuff that i just never ever had experienced before but i will say that friends and family they said i changed and was never ever the same so for better or worse however you want to look at that i mean that was a fact my personality changed my affect changed um permanently i would say and uh, i did get ekgs and they didn't appear to be any brain damage but you know just from hearing feedback from other people and I, my girlfriend at the time it was a real rough 
on her. Yeah. Uh, to have to see that and then deal with a completely different human, essentially, and uh, deal with that recovery and things like that. So, yeah, that was the psychosis experience. And that's actually what led me to meditation, period. Yeah. If I could just explore that a bit more. Did you notice that change in personality uh, or is it just reflecting back that you notice a difference i mean it's pretty obvious things were different like i would stare at trees for like an hour okay. and i never had noticed trees before you know things like the music changed my interests and what i wanted to do completely altered how yeah. i wanted to do it um i started to write poetry i never done that before um i started to become interested in things that were completely off my radar neuroscience meditation things that just weren't in my you know on my radar at all yeah but personality wise i would say yeah. like it's kind of hard to it's i'm the one looking out you know and yeah but your and, your girlfriend and your family members definitely noticed that and close friends you know i was living with friends yeah. you know so they had to deal with that they came to visit me for weeks they came to visit me back at home for weeks so yeah i got some pretty clear feedback that something was up and would you say that you had good supportive family and friends during that time who who supported and helped you absolutely and i also think that i probably wouldn't have recovered at least not in the same fashion without that i mean i went back to my childhood home after a few weeks the psych yeah. ward was very unhelpful for recovery the medication great there's nothing wrong with that uh i think feel like that was helpful but um the environment was actually extremely destructive and kind of accelerating and making the condition worse and uh coming back later and doing volunteer work in the psych ward and in the nursing home where there's some you know there'll be some acute psychotic breaks you start to see how the situation, the environment, the context is actually causing problems. And I think it's not like people aren't aware of this, but it's just something to make note of that uh, if your family member or someone you know does have a psychotic break, it's really not the best spot for them. You know, I know they need medicine and they need medical care, but uh, the environment, depending on where it is, it's different everywhere you go. Every state's yeah. a little bit different. But, you know, at least where I was in Ohio, uh, the situation was pretty rough. Um, and I don't think I would have recovered in the same way, maybe not at all, if I had remained there. And some people don't have a choice. Yeah. And I remember it was difficult for my dad to get my, me out because I didn't have a will. I didn't have power of attorney. I was 18. I hadn't filled out a will. Okay. So that's another thing. It's important to do that uh, so your family has the medical power of attorney and can help you get out if that situation does occur. Yeah, I think that's that's really important in terms of the legal power of attorney because you don't have the mental capacity and having somebody who you've delegated uh, who can make those choices for you. Yeah, very right. important. What was the, the the strange writing? What did you call that again? So they, they you know, I have all my medical documents and in the uh, Dayton uh, psych ward, uh, a psychologist had described it as hypergraphia. Hypergraphia. It, it, it's an actual condition where you write uh, sort of obsessively, compulsively. And it was mostly poems, uh, really simple rhyming schemes that are extremely simple but uh just and endless sort of stream of thoughts uh yeah nothing groundbreaking <laughs> you know so did I mean? that did, did that stop at some point yeah uh i would say that stopped in three or four months okay uh it it wore itself off yeah uh let's move on to the mindfulness i know we explored last time where you started 
to look at mindfulness in terms of the recovery uh, and then going to the, the temple. What I'm interested in is because you've got a deep practice, the kind of states um, that happens in practice and the similarities with some of the hallucinogens. Could you just share a bit about that? Yeah. So um, the reason I got or I started to look into mindfulness wasn't really for recovery. It was to replicate the experience. Okay. It's hard to explain. The experience was so beautiful and horrible, but the highs were highs I had never experienced before. And it was sort of that craving. I wanted to experience it again. And that same thing happens, I think, to a lot of people, and to me included in practice. But in 2019, I had my first really big bangka or dissolution experience in Niagara Falls. And I would say the experience was in a lot of ways identical. So just to explain to the listeners what, because that's quite a technical thing, in terms of dissolution, bunga, if you could talk a bit about you know what what that's like. So it's a, a experience that can happen when doing meditation, uh, maybe any meditation, but specifically uh, noting practice, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw type practice, like Shenzhen teaches the practice I was practicing at the time. I had done a lot of other practices, but it was more sh- uh, focusing on the breath, concentration type practices, uh, various visualizations. Uh, but never with that intensity. You know, the retreat I was noting with an intensity. And what happened was images started to come up, photorealistic hallucinations, uh, the feeling like my body's being ripped apart, like spirits talking to me, speaking to me. Um, I saw halos on other people, just like in the uh, psychosis. It's like you're seeing their, I don't know what you want to call it, their inner light or something. Uh, I would have visualizations of extremely bright, all-encompassing white light. And then eventually, you know, the world changed where it becomes sort of see-through, which is very light. Everything's very extremely light. And that is identical, you know, to the experience that happened uh, on the psychosis. But you're not in the state of psychosis. No. And I think the only difference between a psychosis and disillusion or bangha, uh, you know, those peak experiences in meditation is equanimity. We talk about equanimity, the ability to allow sensations to come and go without pushing and pulling. I did have fear come up at that time. And the fear really revolved around, oh, man, I really don't have time for this right now. I don't want to go back (laughs) to the hospital. I've got a lot going on, you know, that sort of thing coming up, like, is this worth it? Um, And what really calmed that down, it was having the people there, you know, who are saying, Nick, congratulations, you know, Shenzhen or Harpakash, this is normal. Not only is this normal, this is expected. Now, if if someone had treated me like that uh, with a psychosis instead of like, oh, shit, I feel like there's really an opportunity then for another way of handling it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think well, I suppose another... the, the thing with, with the psychosis was that you weren't eating, you weren't drinking. Um, so th- there's that difference there as well, isn't there? That's a significant difference. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably leads to a lot of ungrounded uh, features, you know, uh, and probably contributes to mania, uh, probably in any human, I would imagine. Uh, So officially, it's a drug induced psychosis, right? Uh, But you can also really, what I think of it, it, it's a drug drug initiated, but lack of food, lack of sleep induced. And it's possible that many people would have a psychosis if you didn't sleep for a week. So Shenzhen and Harpakash, you had the support from from people. Had uh, their support. The uh, 
and that totally changed uh, the experience in a way that I was able to tolerate it and handle it. And then it eventually turned into something a lot more gentler, calmer, um, which lasted about three and a half months. I remember the day that it went away and it was in Hawaii. And when it went away, it was the same feeling that I had when the big peak experiences of the psychosis went away. It's like you're leaving God or God has left you. And so it can be fairly traumatic. And it's part of this, like, I've actually been working on a graphic where you start from solidity and you go to dissolution. And then there's a period where you have to deal with going back to solidity, where it's uncomfortable and you have to deal with that coming back to being a solid self. But over time, as this happens more and more often in practice, it seems to be, you know, when I go back, it's not as horrifying to go back to being a regular human or whatever you want to call it, a solid self. And the graphic, it's like it swings big and then it slowly gets smaller and smaller, you know, solid, dissolved until it's happening uh, in in retreat. It'll happen in like a minute. You kind of something happens and then you go back and then something happens and you go back. And my thought is that maybe over time it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. This gap between the two uh, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But yeah, I mean, having this equanimity with going back to a solid self seems to be a big part of the path itself, not even like it's a practice in itself, you know, being okay with that because God hasn't left. He's just going to the bathroom. (laughs) Totally okay. He's going to come right back. (laughs) He's having a break. <laughs> He's having a break. I'm a coffee break. Um, so there was the experience of the dissolution. How does that compare with the other? How does that map onto other hallucinogens? Do some of the other hallucinogens? What type of hallucinogens um, leads to those sort of experiences? So ayahuasca, I've had a lot of dissolution experiences on it. I would say seven or eight. And every time uh, that I've, and and this is sort of in a controlled scenario, okay? I want to point out that no one should take this by themselves. And a controlled scenario in that there's a trained practitioner who's there with you. And every time that it's happened to me, uh, it's been on a longer retreat where you take it three to five times, say, in a week. On a single dose of ayahuasca, I've never had anything comparable to, you know, meditate what a meditation retreat or a drug-induced psychosis can create but on a longer retreat week-long retreat it happens now everyone's different you'll have people on retreat who they take two cups of ayahuasca and barely feel anything there's various degrees of sensitivity i don't know what that is about maybe it's uh, how our brains are wired or maybe it's something with microbiology like the microbiota in our digestive system but everyone takes it a little different and everyone functions a little different under it and has different experiences now it's not just about experiences i know a lot of people talk about especially in the buddhist world if you take a drug more than once you're addicted and you're chasing experiences i agree to a certain extent with certain compounds you know if if you take a you smoke today a cigarette and you smoke tomorrow and you want to smoke the next day yeah you're addicted but nobody takes ayahuasca today and wants to take it tomorrow or at least let me say there's very few people i've ever met who want to do it it's not fun it's beneficial 
it can be potentially beneficial, but it's not fun. So yeah, ayahuasca can produce that dissolution experience. Now, that can be dangerous. If you haven't meditated, if you've never experienced that before, and you just plop into it with very little equanimity, it doesn't matter who's there to tell you everything's okay. That could be extremely dangerous. Now, some people are susceptible to that dissolution, and some people are less susceptible. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty rare, I would say. But I have seen others go into it, you know, under the, the influence of, of ayahuasca. So in um, ayahuasca, is, is there singing or what, what happens? And what's, you, you, you said there, it's a horrible thing. What's, what's horrible, you know, what are the, the horrible things? So it's horrible and beautiful and everything in between. Uh, traditionally, and when I say traditionally, I'm specifically talking about the Shipibo tradition, which is a Peruvian indigenous lineage, really, of sh shamans who provide the medicine for their community. Now it's kind of changed where they're providing medicine in a more commercial format or they're touring through the United States. And we can do five podcasts on that. But the, the, the idea is that you you take the medicine and they sing an ikaro. An ikaro is a healing song. It's a song that came to them under the influence of the medicine. Yeah. And uh, some of these shamans, they've taken it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's part of their tradition, uh, sometimes from as early as 12 years old. Um, but you sit in total darkness in the Shipibo tradition, and they sing these ikros for you, and they sort of clean out your nervous system is the way I can describe it. It's sort of like you're being emptied of problems or knots or places where there's like lack of continuity in the body. It's like you're being washed clean. Yeah. Um, but there's various levels of this, like you can have a really intense experience or you can go and it's not very intense. And It's dependent upon the day, the person, the place. Um, and then there's, you know, not just Shipibo. There's really hundreds of different ayahuasca traditions. Santo yeah. Daime, there's the Kuntanawa in Brazil. Uh, I've, I've sat with some Colombian native practitioners. There's tons of different options, you know, just like in meditation. And they yeah. have their various pros and cons and risks and associated things to consider. Um, I'll love to dig into all that, um, but I'm going to keep us on track in terms of the different hallucinogens and the effects compared with, uh, uh, you know, meditation practice. Um, so what other um, hallucinogens have you taken that um, you can share the, the effects of that with um, meditative practice? Sure. Um, so there's uh, peyote, which there's a legal church out in Arizona we go to. And uh, that, I would say, you only take it once. You don't take it like multiple times in a week. I'm sure you could, but it lasts a really long time and it's extremely uncomfortable. Uh, we've been out there eight times uh, to the church. Well, I have anyway. Um, but there is, it's very uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes you can't sit up. You're kind of rolling around. Um, I'll get so much nausea and stomach pain. I really treat that experience as a kind of accelerator. Never had a dissolution, but it's more working with the body. It's a lot less visual than ayahuasca or LSD. Yeah. There's not much visual things going on. It's sort of processing something uh, in the body. But I, I look at it like an accelerator, like maybe a sweat lodge or 
a vision quest or something or a session, something that's extremely uncomfortable that you're, uh, you know, sitting through in, in the hopes that you, your equanimity is being developed, your ability to deal with pain or discomfort. I mean, the nausea on peyote is worse than any nausea you'll probably experience in any other experience. So right. you're kind of good to go on nausea after a couple, <laughs> uh, you know, it comes and it's not this overwhelming thing. It's like, oh, I know it. Uh, so it, it kind of prepares you for death in a way, but very different from ayahuasca, not really doing that same uh, thing where the, the sense of self breaks up, the identification breaks up, and there's these intense uh, visual journeys. Uh, so ext- extremely different drugs, and they're different drugs, right? The peyote is mescaline, yeah. and uh, the ayahuasca is a DMT. So, so what effects or benefits uh, then from the peyote? Some weird effects I just want to talk about briefly because it's okay. kind of cool. Is my diet changes with uh, peyote, uh, sometimes permanently, sometimes not so permanently. Just to give some examples, I never liked beans, but after taking the peyote a couple times, I love beans and I eat beans. Uh, just an interesting side effect. No guarantee that you'll start to like beans. beans. But, uh, but yeah, just in a, a terms of how it impacts the meditation, I would say the ability to sit through uncomfortable experiences, okay. uh, the ability to sit still for longer uh, periods of time, to tolerate pain, and all of the, especially ayahuasca, but a lot of the hallucinogens, you know, peyote can last up to 16 hours. It also kind of builds an equanimity around lack of sleep, just being okay with that, sort of training in that and being okay with the experiences that come up during that. Because uh, you take it around six or seven at this place, sometimes earlier if it's uh, not that hot, you know, it's in the Arizona desert. But uh, it really is still kicking in, you know, for 18 hours after that. So you don't sleep that night at all. Okay. So when you um, say six or seven, you mean six or seven at night? Six or yeah. seven at night. And then um, I can really still feel it at six or seven the next night. So we're talking like there's residual effects even for 24 hours. It's pretty extreme. The residual effects of the nausea? No, no, no. Just of the actual um, neurological effects. Okay. Um, you know, you're still under the influence of the compound, albeit subtle ways. You're still under the influence up to 24 hours later, but I'd say the bulk of it is passed in 12. You know, you can drive after like 14 or 15, but you still have this lightheadedness. There's sort of residual experiences. It's a very long acting uh, hallucinogen. So with the peyote, there is that lightness you experience as well as the nausea. Yeah. And there could be some contributing effects from not sleeping. You know, you don't sleep that night, just like in Yaza, which is a meditation uh, Japanese meditation practice where you stay up during the night um, in Rinzai Zen. Uh, the same thing can occur, you know, in ayahuasca, a lot of people don't sleep during these retreats, or, or at least not as much. Let's put it that way. Um, peyote, I, I, I very rarely talk to anyone who takes it and, and gets to sleep that night. It's pretty rare. Um, so that could be a contributing effect as well. But yeah, creating a lightness, a sort of lightness in the body, a less sense of me in this, you know. Okay. So uh, a <laughs> merging kind of experience. Yeah, just to give a really concrete example, I remember on peyote, you come back after the morning, like 10 or 11 a.m. after the sun comes up and they have food. You know, you eat food for the first time. You can't eat it all during the experience. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even want to. But I remember not being able to tell 
like having trouble distinguishing between the things on the table. Like someone says, hand me the salt or whatever. And I can't quite find it because it's like everything's one thing. So that's uh, pretty short acting. You know, it's not like that lasts forever. But just yeah. to give you some ideas of the actual, just a concrete example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. And does that happen with, so that's interesting because uh, in terms of meditative experiences, that happens, that merging with um, inside and outside. Um, does that happen with ayahuasca? Or... Yeah, I would say okay. it happens with ayahuasca, ayahuasca too. As well. okay. And like I said before, it could also have a lot to do with lack of sleep, but there is definitely okay. a sort of this is all one thing <laughs> experience, which can happen, you know, even if, if one night of taking ayahuasca, but it can also happen. It seems to happen more often with a longer retreat and to more people. And I really think that my experience with the psychosis made me particularly sensitive to ayahuasca, because when I go to these retreats and other hallucinogens, I'm getting a, I'm noticing I have to take a lot less and getting these massive uh distortions, changes in my perception, uh, whereas other people may not have that. Some people do, um, but there is there is sort of a, I don't know if it's from the meditation or it's from the psychosis, there seems to be an increased sensitivity. And uh, for example, in this last retreat I went to last month, uh, there was one other individual there. I really was bonding with her because what she said made so much sense. She was so sensitive, taking just a quarter cup, you know, clearly really deep in the medicine, especially when she shares about it. So it's not like there's no one else out there who that's happening to, but there's yeah. various yeah. degrees of sensitivity. And there's also a relationship that forms. When I say that, I don't mean like it's a conscious entity. I mean that over time, it snowballs in the short term and long term. So if you take it three or four times in a week, the fourth one's the strongest, generally, the fourth time. It builds in your body and you open to it, you get used to it. It's kind of like riding a bike. But then I've also noticed there's sort of a compounding over time. So like your 20th cup will be significantly more intense, generally speaking, uh, than your fifth. Yeah. So there's sort of a, a building or a, a breaking down of barriers. You get more like into the flow of the medicine. It's sort of like over time it grows. And that's not the case with peyote or any other hallucinogen as far as I know. So that's uh, specific with ayahuasca. Specific yeah. with ayahuasca. Yeah. And it might have to do with the fact that it has an MAOI inhibitor, uh, and there might be something, you know, microbiologically significant about that, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what other things have you tried that maps on to meditative uh, experiences? 5-MeO-DMT uh, is the most significant, meditatively, relationally significant compound, I would say. It's a uh, venom from a toad in the Sonoran Desert. And it's also synthetic. So it's made in the laboratory. And the synthetic version is actually significantly more consistent than the toad venom. And not only is it more consistent, there is an issue with conservation with these toads or an issue with exploitation. There's a lot of conservationists out there now, you know, trying to help with the situation. But um, it could be potentially detrimental to the toad to extract its venom because it's its self-defense mechanism. And there's obvious reasons with keeping them in captivity that's a problem. Yeah. So it's really best to use the synthetic, in my opinion. I've tried both. And uh, the issue with the natural is that, first of all, you have to use a large amount, like 70 to 80 milligrams. But it's not very consistent. And you can think about why that might be. It's not very consistent because the toad has eaten 
whatever it's eaten, uh, hydrated to whatever extent it's hydrated, the venom's produced in its body. There's variabilities there. You'll hear people say, but the toad has a spirit, and I really am not on that you know, team. Yeah. Uh, the, the synthetic is just significantly more uh, consistent and ethical. Okay, but what does it do? So you smoke it. If, if you, it's a poison if you eat it. It can kill you. It actually yeah, okay. kills dogs all the time in Tucson. Yeah. But when smoked, you meet God. I would, it's equivalent to the experience of cessation in the meditative world. Um, and some people say, uh, you know, Nibbana. So it could be some equivalency to Nibbana. Now, there's various levels to this, just like with any other hallucinogen. Sometimes you take it and that happens. Sometimes you take it and that doesn't. But yeah. most of the time, you know, if, if I smoke 5-MeO-DMT, my categories go away. So I, I don't see out. I don't see in. Yep. I don't see objects. I don't see objects internally. When you say categories, could you just explain to people who... Yeah, uh, in the Unified Mindfulness Shenzhen Young system, there's uh, see, hear, feel. And there's six categories. What we see out in the environment, what we actual objects that you can touch or, you know, that are physical objects in the environment. Then there's internal objects, things that occur in our mind's eye, so to speak. Then there's a hear out, you know, me talking in the microphone right now. There's hear in your self-talk or music in your head or any variety of sound. And then there's feel out what, you know, sensation in the body. And then there's what we call feel in, which is emotional sensation, which is kind of like a, a unified movement of uh, emotion that occurs typically for me somewhere in the torso chest yeah. area but in various locations so categories are what we call sensory experience what we experience through our senses about the world and internally so going back to what you said um the the sensory experience just disappeared yeah um most it was very shocking the first time i ever took it 2019 in peru we actually went to take it we were trying to find uh, we ended up taking ayahuasca there but we went for the the to uh, toad because we found a really good practitioner but anyways when i took it yeah everything went away but i was still able to go so to speak to where the categories are okay like i could still go to the location of it and when i say i like the attention could still go to the location of where those things typically exist but there's nothing there it's sort of like walking around in a utterly uh blank nothing room i would get a little bit of see out uh, but in later experiences after getting familiar with it and dose dosing and things like that it's pretty consistent you know we're, we're talking like a pretty consistent cessation experience in my system uh, which is kind of unbelievable if you think about it i mean it's just it just happens and it, it only lasts 10 to 15 minutes there's the residual effects for about 45 minutes and as far as like does this carry out into the world yeah, a little bit into the meditation world. I mean, you kind of remember what it felt like, and therefore it's easier to acquire it or to access it at later times. Now, not everyone's a meditator. I'm like under the belief that it's not really safe to do it if you're not a meditator, because there's yeah. this profound traumatic thing that happens if you're not able to let go. If you're not able to let go, it's like God is just knocking at your door, you know, and, and you're trying to 
you know, you resist, resist, resist. And I would say 90% of experiences, you know, that I've observed, there's this intense resistance. Um, so really that compounds about letting go. And it's different than any other hallucinogen in the sense that it's doing something different. It's messing with the I am here and that is over there. That's what it's working with. It's not working with here's your uh, ancestor, you know, you know, because in that experience, it's me and the ancestor or me and the hallucination or me and whatever you want to call it. This yeah. is different. Yeah. Th this is an eradication uh, temporarily of that. And it can be extremely shocking. And some people have traumatic after effects. And as a matter of fact, in Mexico, they're giving it to teenagers. You know, they'll go to like Tulum for their beach vacation with their family, like 15, 16 year olds. And they're like, oh, this looks cool. You know, there'll be like a toad shaman and they'll go and take the medicine and have. Yeah. I've seen people who have had very traumatic problems where they're getting, they, they call it a flashback. It's not a flashback, it's a profound opening. And once the gate is opened, it's not always permanent in everyone, but in some people it is, you know, depending on your biology or current state on the path, whatever you want to call it, some people get into this. And when once you get into this, as you may know, Bob, there's not necessarily, you can't necessarily climb your way out of it. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have any experience, you don't have a teacher, you don't have equanimity developed to a sufficient manner. Yeah, it can be potentially. So I just want to point this out that don't just go out there and grab some 5-MeO-DMT from somewhere. And, and another thing is it's, it can be very dangerous to take it alone. And the reason is because I would say most people, especially the first few times, they lose swallow reflex or the ability to defend themselves. Uh, some people stand up and walk about on it. Some people run or roll. So it's really not safe to take it anywhere near water. It's not safe to uh, have anyone pour water on your face when you're on it. That's a common thing in Mexico. Just think about that. You don't have a swallow reflex. Yeah. Extremely dangerous. Um, so it's it, it's getting into the realm of like uh, you need an actual someone who's familiar with first aid with you, you know, when you take it. Yeah. Uh, and definitely never take it uh, by yourself. Don't take it near water. Don't take it near a cliff. Uh, there's a lot of protocols that need to go into place here. But under the right environment, it can be administered in a healthy way. And I've actually been doing some uh, reading about in Europe, they're giving it in a muscular injection now, and they're experimenting with nasal. There's a there's a couple versions. There's a vaporizable version, and then there's a, a water-soluble version. And the water-soluble version, you can put it in injected, or you can do a nasal ingestion. I've never tried either of them, but interestingly, you know, 10 minutes with the smoked, can be very traumatic but yeah. with the intramuscular it lasts like an hour okay uh and with the nasal it doesn't last that long but it, it lasts a little so it's possible that what we need to do hasn't quite been fleshed out yet yeah. but the studies they've done i think it was in the netherlands are pretty very promising i mean in terms of psychological outcomes um extremely promising but yeah, very interesting and probably the most interesting in terms of meditation, yeah. like how it could relate to meditation, how it could uh, potentially accelerate uh, this, your skill level, concentration, your sensory clarity, your equanimity. But also, can it potentially 
give your nervous system a feeling for these uh, really deep experiences. And if that's the case, and it's possible to get into them with the compound and then relearn how to get into them after the compound, then this is completely game changer here. Because if that's the case, then it's really possible to kind of jump, jump over some hurdles here. Uh, whether or not that's a good idea, I have no idea. Uh, obviously, there's a litany of problems associated with that. And, and it seems like, you know, there, there should be a case by case. Is this okay? Is this not okay? And also, who knows? You know, everyone's yeah. a little different. There's always different outcomes. It's unclear how, from a blanket, you know, we can't just blanket this and, and over everyone and expect it to be a positive outcome. Yeah. So I think at the moment there's dangers there. So yeah. Oh um, yeah. What What else have you tried, Nick? That sort of maps on to uh, meditation. I've tried a lot of other compounds, but I would say that's sort of the end in terms of hallucinogens that are yeah. helpful for meditation. Uh, there, there is some possible benefit for uh, mushrooms, psilocybin. Okay. But I'm, you know, at this point, I, you know, this is anecdotal. This is me just talking. But it seems like microdosing is very potentially beneficial for the meditation. I'm not so sure about these big doses, five grams, three grams, two grams. And the reason is they're very unpredictable. They can be beneficial. And I had some very beneficial mushroom uh, experiences early on. And I would say the first three were maybe beneficial in a limited way. Uh, but I have found some benefit from microdosing with mushrooms. You know, microdosing, for those who aren't familiar, it's taking a very small amount, so small that you can't feel it or you can barely feel it. And then taking it a few times a day. So like you can take it and go to work and do all the things that you normally do. And the thought is that if you do that, there might be some some sort of manipulation in the brain where maybe it's increasing neuroplasticity or it's increasing your ability to learn. I've heard some people say, wow, I can play with my kids when I microdose. So there is some changes in experience. But I'm not in the camp that it's that beneficial uh, just in terms of what else is out there. Yeah. And beneficial in the sense, like, for depression, great. For PTSD, great. I'm talking about specifically how it maps on to meditation and uh, the traditional expected outcome, you know, a lack of identification yeah. with the self, feeling more free, more open. I mean, That's what's, what your experience, what's your experience with mushrooms? I took, that was the first hallucinogen I took after my psychosis. And I was very overjoyed that, <laughs> nothing bad happened you know <laughs> they were telling me you know don't smoke marijuana don't take any you know you, you take it once you're gonna you know immediately be back in the hospital um but i took two and a half grams actually at a really bad environment i was still in college 19 years old and it was at a fraternity party actually but it was the first time i'd ever taken mushrooms and I, it was very opening and freeing for me um over the years i've probably taken 30 or 40 doses of mushrooms yeah uh, all the way up to 12 grams five grams seven grams i've taken various levels quantities and when you say a very opening and uh, freeing for you what do you mean by by that what's what effects do you have so feeling like you're you've been born again that was kind of my experience with the first time that i took it and having this really you know, in unified mindfulness, we might call it, you know, when you have a big opening experience, you can can have kind of a flat line. 
when those experiences fade, everything fades, including peak experiences. And it was nice to kind of, kind of get back something. It kind of felt like I was getting back something that had occurred during the psychosis. And I think I just really had solidified back into Nick. You know, okay. I'm Nick. Everybody else is everybody else. This is what I'm doing. Just sort of the typical habitual emotional complex, you know, that made up me. And it gave some, you know, limited uh, breaking up of that. You know, it, it created a sort of opening, however brief. So from that uh, perspective, you know, at least in my opinion, it seems useful, but not at, on an ongoing basis. Uh, use, useful in an acute scenario. So did, um, if I could dig a bit into that, so did your sensory clarity taking that increase and there was an tr- intrinsic pleasantness to what you were experiencing? Absolutely. Okay. Um, but that dose, uh, you know, when I was 19, pre-meditation, or maybe I'd been going to the Tibetan temple for a few months, so just starting breath on the nose sort of thing. So, you know, those things weren't really meshing yet you know i didn't i wasn't familiar with the skill set what i was really doing with meditation why i was doing it that sort of thing but i mean as recently as two years ago yeah late 2021 i I did a 12 gram dose here at the house and uh you know did the whole john hopkins protocol where you wear the eye mask and listen to music and that sort of thing and it was like it was interesting it was a endless dream you know a sort of interesting experience uh, but I didn't get much uh, benefit out of that. And it might be that it's just exceeded its usefulness at this point. But in my yeah. experience, the ayahuasca, peyote, and 5-MeO-DMT have potential benefit to the meditative path in ways that uh, mushrooms don't. And this is just my anecdotal opinion. Now, yeah. in terms of the broader population, you know, if you've been to war, you've never taken a hallucinogen. Now we're talking about a completely different context. There, there could be some very serious benefit. Uh, or if you have depression that's so bad and, and you take mushrooms, it, that could be extremely helpful. And there's evidence. I mean, you can look it up on the Internet. There's yeah. tons of evidence out there about those conditions and how yeah. that could. I'll, I would just like to add that. Make sure it's done through a therapist. We're, we're not saying uh, <laughs> for people to just go out and, and take mushrooms. But in terms of they, if they're going to be using it in terms of depression therapy to get uh, a qualified therapist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. and that's going to help with integration and keeping you on track, and also uh, making sure that it's safe. A lot of mushrooms can be moldy, you know, if they're grown in an improper way. And another thing is that uh, even if you don't have a therapist present, which in many cases you'll see, you know, young kids doing that, taking mushrooms without sometimes alone. Uh, it's always important to have a sitter. Um, just like with the 5-MeO-DMT, with any hallucinogen, because you need someone to make sure that you're staying safe in a conventional manner. Um, It's not always clear what's going on. And it's important to have someone who's very, very experienced there, who isn't under the influence, especially with mushrooms. You know, so just keep that in mind. It's not something to be played around with. It can be a useful thing, but it can also be a dangerous thing. Any one of these. So it's important to 
keep that in mind. Thanks for highlighting that, Nick. Um, two things I'd like to for you to just talk before we, we finish. One is your journey of recovery. What were the things that helped you? Because I, th- I think, you know, for those listening to the podcast, whether they've had psychosis or people who uh, they know have had psychosis taking some of these uh, substances, you know, what for you helped you on your journey to recovery? Yeah, so water and food. Uh, most importantly um sleep friends and sleep yeah uh friends and family yeah uh acute antipsychotic so when i say acute what i mean by that is temporary and i'm not saying that taking it long term is bad necessarily but there is uh, a limit to what you can do without the assistance of a medical professional and one of those limitations is the ability to prescribe uh compounds like seroquel or sedatives or i mean sometimes that is necessary dependent on the severity of the situation but yeah i mean being in a comfortable environment is huge um so being able to be in my childhood home was huge i wasn't really recovering at this at the psych ward going back to my stuff you know my stuff is in like work i went back to work i went back it took about six months but i did ultimately uh go back to to working in the warehouse at the uh, for the air national guard but I also uh, went back to school. You know, I kept up with the activities that I was doing before, which sort of integrating it back in, you know, having something to do uh, was really important. Um, but I would say most importantly, sleep, food, water, friends and family. And you had your music, didn't you? I mean, did the music or the meditation help at all or any other things? Yeah, so I didn't go to the temple probably for about a year. Uh, so it was probably sometime in early 2008, maybe six to eight, nine months after the psychosis that I went to the Karmakaju temple for the first time and for initially just on Sundays and it would be an hour, uh, and 45 minutes of that or 30 minutes of that was just focusing breath at the tip of the nose. Yeah. Very simple, very limited. Um, and that was about, you know, I had kind more or less already recovered before going there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would say that was very helpful um, later on. But yeah, the music was great. Having an outlet, a creative outlet, something to kind of pour that energy in because some often you can pour your energy into that. And uh, I, I should bring up that if you do have a history of mental illness, it doesn't mean that it's going to be okay for you to take a hallucinogen. Uh, it seems like a lot of the outliers here, the people who, you know, You'll see with ayahuasca, the Santo Daime has done research where I think 3% of people have negative effects, whether it's some sort of psychotic outcome uh, or just a negative outcome. And often those people have a history of mental illness. It doesn't seem to be that big of a problem for me. If anything, it's helpful. It seems to be beneficial at this point. But it's important to point out that my experience isn't going to map on everyone else's experience. Yeah. And that there seems to be some real world evidence that that could be an issue. And even in retreat, I mean, when I go to retreats, the first, uh, you know, 10 retreats I went on, it says, have you had a mental breakdown? No, because I got turned away from a Goenka retreat for putting that. Yeah. So I would not put it because I didn't want to be put into this box where, oh, you're not allowed to go on retreat. And I understand that. But it is there for a reason. And it's important to know your limitations and understand that 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 is a risk. You know, if you've had a history 
that that is a risk. And there's always the risk of grandiosity, like especially in meditation, you have this big experience. It's possible that mania could be triggered or uh, depression. You know, if you've had a history, it's more likely to come up again. And I noticed in my experience that flatline is a big problem. And maybe that's associated with some of those. It, it, it maybe that's part of that whole complex, you know. Yeah. So just just describe what flatline is for those listeners who don't understand. What's yeah. That so when there's a, um, and everyone kind of handles things a little differently. It's really uncomfortable for some people. But when there's a peak experience of meditation, uh, what we might call bangha or dissolution, um, a breaking up of the sense of self. The solidified sense of self, um, it can be a number of things. It could be unbelievably pleasant, in my case, or it could be unbelievably scary, or it can be just sort of neutral somewhere on that dynamic range. Now, for me, it was unbelievably pleasant, like like the world has been lifted from my shoulders. And when that dissipates, which it does, you know, in that first uh, uh, 2019, about three and a half months. Yeah, it, it dissipated. Uh, th- there's a falling out uh, where I feel like I failed, you know, so there's an emotional aspect, but then also just dealing with the real world. I was here. Now I'm here. It really yeah. feels like you've you've lost something really important. And just every time that's happened, I get more and more used to that happening, more and more equanimity around that occurring, the solidification happening. And it's, it's, you know, it, the flat line is just don't want to practice. Uh, that's a big one. Don't want to practice. Is there for you a blandness to things? Yeah, it's like the world's not cool anymore. Yeah. Food doesn't taste good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a dis- curiosity, a disinterest, um, a sort of lack of engagement can occur. But just bringing the practice back, the real simple practices, the, you know, back to the, to that world, being yeah. able to apply them to that world. Not only does it sort of speed up this process where you're more likely to go back quicker or and deeper the next time around, but the more okay you are with that solidification, it's like, it starts to be less of a difference. Uh, like there's less of a, uh, I'm here now. I'm there. It's like a maturity. You're becoming okay with that and that. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, I think the goal is to get it to the point where there's no preference. There's no preference at all, right? Between that or this. Not only in that, whether it's your solid or dissolved, but in everything, right? Just don't choose. No preference. That's all it is. That's all any of it is. And and but. We're talking about a specific complex here, but in the broader context of practice and life, you know, I think that also applies. Yeah, Um, I think this just highlights how important it is to have a coach, uh, a mindfulness coach to kind of guide you through that terrain and support you and and help you. And um, lastly, people you've helped with bad uh, experiences, you know, have have you have have you helped people through because having gone through yourself you know the kind of things to look out for and and support them 
Yeah, I, I put that on my UM. We have a coaching bio on the Unified Mindfulness page and somewhere at the, I don't know, I think it's still on there. Okay. I put helping people who've had difficulty with hallucinogenic experience because I had a few experiences where I worked with clients prior to putting that on the page. But after putting yeah. that on the page, I started to get a, quite a few people come forward with various levels of problems, yeah. uh, ranging from I ate a marijuana brownie and I can't sleep anymore to um, I took 5-MeO-DMT in Mexico and uh, I'm having panic attacks you know, before I go to bed and I don't feel like myself. I'm afraid all the time. So yeah, uh, that is really, I think, for someone who comes forward and is a meditator, it's a very different experience than someone who comes forward and isn't. Yeah. And it's just a different, it's it's really hard to introduce someone to the practice once they're in this potentially uh, life-altering uh, world of hallucinogenic outcome. Uh, the, if you already had some practice, it's pretty good. And uh, to the point where, like, if you're taking 5-MeO-DMT, you really should have some meditation practice. If you're taking I one my opinion, you know, uh, not everyone shares that opinion. Um, but I really think that that's useful and helpful. But, yeah, a lot of people have come forward. Um, I like to use, you know, the reward states and unified mindfulness to help yeah. them. So feel rest. I mean, just immediately, the first thing always is uh, finding rest in the body. And some people are already familiar with this. They've done practices where, uh, you know, you relax the various muscles in your body. But just relaxing the muscles on the out breath is kind of a start. Let's just start there and move forward from there, ultimately to trying to get into the contour and less, oh, everything's fucked. And more, <laughs> what is that like? Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, uh, because when it's happening, it's like, I just ruined my, I ruined something. I took this thing and I, I ruined something perfect, which isn't really what happened. Yeah. Uh, there's been an opening and there's a lack of equanimity to deal with that opening. So it, it is one thing. It's just being, it's okay what's happened. And, you know, to take it from Shenzhen, congratulations, you know, <laughs> just calm, calming yeah. it down through acceptance. And that they didn't make a mistake. You know, it's just we got to work from here now. But yeah, uh, that is a thing. And I, I feel like uh, it's more common in younger, uh, at least with ayahuasca and 5-MeO-DMT, seeing younger and younger people. I had an 18-year-old yeah. girl who went to Peru and did a week. And, uh, you know, just wasn't... The first drug she ever took was ayahuasca four times. And that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And the sense of trajectory here. I mean, that's like a right out of the blue sort of thing. And there needs to be some integration. And a lot of these circles have various levels of that. Sometimes there's none. Yeah. Sometimes I there's think, some. I think you hit the key there, uh, Nick, that how you're able to help them integrate these experiences um, so that they can become whole again. I'm, I've, I'm feeling a lot of appreciation that you're able to, to do that for, for people who've, who've had these um, bad experiences. Yeah. And uh, see here, feel rest. Uh, you gotta, gotta add in the see here. That's <laughs> important. Okay. Well, Nick, um, thank you very much um, for sharing um, your experience um, and um, you know speaking very honestly and openly about uh, about uh, these um, 
these topics. So um, no problem. Yes. I enjoyed yeah. it, Bob. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help and support us, please like and subscribe below.